R. Sitaraman, a junior management grade employee at the State Bank of India, was not playing the role of a banker today. He was only attending the mundan ceremony of his four-year-old son at a temple in a small town in Tamil Nadu, a state in the south of India. But as he attended to his parental duties, his employer was tailing him. They needed Sitaraman, who was on leave for a week, back at the head office immediately. It was when reconciling the accounts that Sitaraman was supposed to be handling that the bank had stumbled across a rupees 574 crore hole that they had no explanation for, other than the fact that this must be the money owed to them by Harshad Mehta and his firm, who were their brokers. When they managed to get Sitaraman back to the office, he could produce no paperwork or records of the bank's claim of that money. In fact, what he revealed was alarming, to say the least. Sitaraman confessed that with one turn of his pen, he had turned a number of rupees 1,170 crores to 1,670 crores on the bank's subsidiary general ledger, or SGL, a document that recorded what securities the bank held and what their worth was. In other words, he had just invented 5 billion rupees out of thin air. Honey, that probably was with Harshad Mehta right now, was using it to juice the stock market. How exactly had Harshad Mehta, a man whose firm was not even involved in the bank securities market until less than five years ago, gotten to this position where he was effectively making the country's premier bank perpetrate outright fraud? And why had this not surfaced before? India's banking sector and its stock market were about to discover an illicit link between them. One that perhaps would not have been exposed for even longer had Harshad Mehta not decided to get extra ambitious and like Icarus flying closer and closer to the sun on his wax wings only to see them melt, triggered a financial meltdown. Hello and welcome to Book of Sins, a podcast from The Economist that delves into the economics of financial scams and tries to decipher how they could have taken place. I'm your host, Tariq Laskar. In season one, we are looking back at the 1992 stock market scam in India and the role played by Harshad Mehta, a broker with the nickname Big Bull. This is episode two, an avalanche of avarice. In the last episode, we traced the story of Harshad Mehta and how a young and ambitious stock market operator emerged as a formidable player, taking every advantage he could get from the information asymmetry in an antiquatedly operated and opaque capital market in India. He was not the only one to do so, but what set him apart was his willingness to push the envelope of the system. He wanted to stress test the system to its limits and create as much wealth as he possibly could along the way. The only trouble was being a stock market operator while sounding exotic and maybe even glamorous did not deliver big money. One can make a killing in any market if they have two advantages, that of information and that of funding. Harshad Mehta and a few other big brokers had figured the first part out, but what they needed was the second part. The easiest source of funds would have been their clients' money. But there were two limitations to that. Number one, they couldn't use those funds to trade on their own account. The best they could do was earn brokerage. Number two, a lot of Indians did not invest in the stock market. 
their money was lying deposited in bank accounts. No matter how much a company like Reliance democratized equity holding, it was still holding only a tiny sliver of the investing public. Savings were parked within the banking system, and that banking system had fetters around it. The banking system that allows us to go about our daily business and keeps the economy running is called a fractional reserve banking system. It is effectively designed to create money out of thin air by only requiring the banks to keep a fraction of their customer deposits in reserve, hence the name fractional reserve banking, and using the rest of the money to create assets of a reasonable risk profile by lending it out to companies and individuals who are looking for loans. India had had a slightly checkered history with its banking system. And the modern history of banking and its role in the Indian economy almost unquestionably owes itself to a decision in 1969, around the same time when man landed on the moon. The Reserve Bank of India called that decision the single most important economic decision ever taken. Not even the reforms of 1991 are comparable in their consequences, political, social, and of course, economic. That decision was the call to nationalize 14 of India's largest banks in the interest of what the then Prime Minister Indira Gandhi said, social goals, regulating the banks tightly and compelling them to serve the sectors that needed bank credit but couldn't get it. For example, the agricultural sector. It would take a whole other podcast to dissect the whole history of the consequences of this move. But for our story, the key element was that banks suddenly found themselves with extremely limited options of where they could deploy their funds. 25% of their funds would have to be kept in reserve with the Reserve Bank of India. That too, without interest. That component was called the cash reserve ratio. Another 38% would be deployed as SLR or statutory liquidity ratio. Banks would compulsorily have to buy Government of India-issued securities like bonds and treasury bills with that portion of their customer deposits. These were intended as safeguards, but they also became limitations for the banks because of the high amounts of the ratio. Only the remaining one-third or so of the funds could actually be lent out, and that too to specified priority sectors like agriculture. Interest rates of the government securities were usually fixed at relatively low levels, and to encourage savings, the deposit rates were generally specified to be a bit higher. This meant that the banks could barely squeeze out any profits. They needed ways to make money, but they couldn't deploy customer deposits in risky assets like, say, the stock market. Enter the Portfolio Management Scheme, or PMS for short. The IPI allowed banks to operate these where public sector units, or anybody else for that matter, who had huge amounts of idle and surplus cash could bring them to the bank and ask it to be put into stocks. The money was not treated as a deposit and thus not subject to the reserve requirements. All of it could go into the stock market. The risk was borne completely by the customer and the banks couldn't provide any guaranteed returns. In reality, however, to attract these funds, the banks would tell their customers that they will deliver a certain indicative return or benchmark return, a euphemism for guaranteeing a certain percentage of return. 
Naturally, this was a risky game and banks needed ways to make sure they made those returns and more. Because anything over and above the return, they could potentially keep for themselves as profits. This was as lucrative as it was dangerous. And it definitely was borderline illegal. The PSUs were often bribed to keep money with a particular bank, and the money itself was shown as a fixed deposit on the PSU's books. Thus, the guaranteed return. But the banks accounted for it as short-term funds for which they did not have to put aside any reserves. This was so that the funds would not need to be parked with the bank for one year, the minimum duration for a PMS account according to the RBI guidelines, and both the bank and the PSU would make a quick buck. The banks, including foreign ones like ANZ Grindley's, Standard Chartered and Citibank, who had escaped nationalization, were aggressively moving in this space. But to make their benchmark and indicative returns, they needed to put their chips into the roulette wheel that was the stock market. And they needed help in rigging that roulette wheel. Through the route of the money market, the SBI had found a willing participant to do that. And that participant was Harshad Mehta. One quick word of clarification here. While a lot of what I'm about to describe took place at other banks and with other brokers too, for narrative simplicity, we are going to stick to the plotline involving Harshad Mehta and the SBI. We will be looking at the other banks and players in a later episode. Banks, on a daily basis, need to move funds around. That's how the banking system works. Sometimes it could be to make sure they have enough money to meet withdrawal obligations. At others, it could be to make sure that they have the right proportion of reserves when their deposits go up. They do this by buying or selling government-issued securities through appointed brokers who are authorized by the RBI. Think of a scenario where, let's say, Bank A requires some emergency funds. It could borrow it from Bank B, but it would need to give them some kind of a collateral. So they would enter into an agreement where Bank A would send across some securities to Bank B, which would be the collateral, and Bank B would lend the money to Bank A. This would usually be a very short-term loan, typically not longer than about 15 days. And then at the end of it, Bank A would repossess the securities and Bank B would be paid back its money. However, all this action usually happens in what is called the money market. The money market's volumes are almost 20 times of the stock market. On a good day, stocks worth 200 crore rupees may change hands at the Bombay Stock Exchange back when our story is set, that is, the late 1980s and the early 1990s. At that time in the money market, 4,000 crore rupees worth of securities changing hands in a day was a routine matter. With such huge sums involved, the brokers were an even more close-knit cartel in this market. And often because banks did not know who the counterparty was, that is, the bank that they were selling to or the bank that they were buying from, the brokers were the market makers. That meant they had key information to be able to match sellers and buyers, and like in the stock market, they could manipulate prices to their advantage. 
Banks were woefully under-equipped in terms of technology and skilled manpower to calculate the price and value of these securities such as government bonds and the brokers took full advantage. Harshad Mehta became one of those brokers in 1987 as he and his company looked to move up from being a mere fringe player in the market to being someone who could trade on his own account and keep his own profits. It was unusual for a very active broker in the share market to make the jump into the money market. But we have already established that Harshad Mehta was not one for norms. He knew the stockbroking business carried risks and he had suffered badly through this with his positions the year before. He needed an alternate revenue stream. But beyond that, he needed that bazooka to emerge as a super investor. And that bazooka was an endless supply of money. All the money that the banks were moving around caught his fancy. And he figured out that if he could somehow direct it into the stock market, he could create a money-making machine that fed on itself. Icarus had found his wings. His whole scheme was fundamentally simple. When making a money market deal between two banks, he would get one of them through pliable officials such as Sitaraman, who we met at the start of the episode, divert money into his own account on the basis of fictitious paperwork, which was super illegal. That money he would use to take positions in the stock market. And because it was big money, his positions moved the relatively small market in the direction that he wanted. It's as if from being a school kid sitting across the seesaw from another school kid, Harshad Mehta became the incredible Hulk, moving the market up by his mere presence. He started buying certain shares heavily. One of those companies was ACC, the cement company. He kept buying, which drove the price higher and higher. Even though people could not quite figure out why exactly should this company be this valuable. But because the price was going higher, more people wanted to buy it. And that pushed the price even higher. It became a self-fulfilling prophecy where the ACC stock had gone from quoting a price of rupees 300 to quoting a price of rupees 10,000 without any dramatic changes to their business model or any dramatic growth in their balance sheet. Harshad Mehta started picking up growing stakes in companies across the board with no intention of taking them over as a big investor would usually do. All he wanted to do was drive their prices up. As an India Today cover story described in 1993, his modus operandi was, and I quote, he manipulated share prices by buying heavily into scripts, jacking up their prices. Then he would use his inflated portfolio as collateral to raise money from banks to buy back an equal amount in government securities that was contracted for delivery to banks like the SBI and use the seller bank to have them delivered. The process could be rolled on endlessly with the amount increasing each time. Thus, he would be able to close that fictitious entry loop and nobody in the system would really be any wiser. In other words, Harshad Mehta had found the perfect way to dip his hand into this jar of free money. And all he needed to do was make sure that once he had deployed the money in the stock market, he would return the cookie back into the cookie jar 
without anybody noticing. But to pull that trick off, just being a big buyer wasn't enough. To make himself a true market messiah, he needed credibility and pull. He smartly started investing in his persona and his myth. You could say Harshad Mehta was India's first influencer. Only instead of curated Instagram posts, he started a public relations blitz and dropped nuggets of so-called stock investing wisdom in interviews and talks, making catchy statements like these. I don't make waves, I ride them, went one of his lines. Another time in another interview, he sounded seemingly clever by saying, if the Dow Jones trading theory is applicable to the most sophisticated market in New York, then it is also applicable to oil trading in Jamnagar. His fleet of 29 cars, among them the first ever Toyota Lexus imported into India, and his claims that he was the highest taxpayer in the country, all made the news and made people take notice. He was becoming a super operator. There were other brokers in the system, and there were other investors, but nobody was as flashy, as flamboyant, and as famous. All of it fed nicely into his mission. Because in the cloak of his sketchy-sounding theories, Harshad Mehta had created enough clout to exploit herd behavior in the markets, and he had done so perfectly. His influence on the market is evident in the story that shares of a commercial vehicle company called Swaraj Mazda had risen in price because Harshad Mehta had once bought an unrelated leasing company called Mazda Industries. And there were rumors that he was about to buy another quote-unquote Mazda company. The rumors probably meant another Mazda Industries-like company, but nobody had time to read the nuance. Everybody started buying shares of a company that made commercial vehicles and was actually a joint venture between the government of Punjab and the Japanese automobile company Mazda. Harshad Mehta owned no stake in it. In fact, he even explicitly spelt out his whole modus operandi to business today in an interview where he said, and I quote, the basic economic law of demand supply price works just the reverse way in stock markets. Textbooks tell you that the price of a commodity is high when the demand is low. Also, supply is low when the price is low. In stock markets, it is the other way around. If stock prices are on the upswing, the demand is also high. And when the price is falling, demand also falls and the supply increases. Using this technically incorrect but accidentally useful insight, Harshad Mehta pumped so much money into the markets that the BSE Sensex, the index that tracks the level of prices of stocks in the Bombay Stock Exchange, went from 1,000 points in February 1991 to 4,500 points by April 22, 1992. Regulators, lawmakers, and income tax authorities were growing wary at this sudden rise. They wondered where the money was coming from, but Icarus was already flying very close to the sun. And his wings began melting when he made that trip to the State Bank of India headquarters in his Lexus in April 1992. The SBI had wanted the meeting to be hush-hush. 
they had just found out through Sitaraman the hole in its accounts. And they wanted to question Harshadnetha on where the money had gone. More importantly, they wanted him to pay up and plug the gap. They wanted to bury the scandal quietly. But when yours is the only car of its kind in the entire country, it's bound to get noticed. The rumors started flying. And in a couple of days, the story had broken in the newspapers that Harshad Mehta had been summoned to SBI and there is a 500 crore gap that they are not able to reconcile. The very thing that had allowed Harshad Mehta to amass unfathomable wealth, that is, herd behavior in the market in the absence of credible and concrete information, now threatened to blow his whole operation down. Icarus was brought down to earth. Within two weeks, a federal investigation would begin and within five weeks, Harshad Mehta would have been arrested. The flow of money through the banking and financial system is a little like the plumbing in the house. It helps the money flow in the economy to where it is required, just as the indoor plumbing helps supply water around the house. But investigators, both at the banks and the federal level, had smelt a rat. As the investigators looked under the hood, they were about to discover that the plumbing was clogged, not because of one stray rat, but an infestation that had the potential of taking the entire system down. Next time on Book of Sins, how to hide a scam in plain sight. The play-by-play of an operation where everybody was both playing by the rules and bending. Book of Sins is written and presented by me, Tariq Laskar. The executive producer of Book of Sins is Jayanth Nanjapa. Research for this episode has drawn from numerous sources, but the two main ones are the books The Polyester Prince by Hamish MacDonald and The Scam by Sucheta Dalal and Devashish Basu. The background music is by Lee Rosevier. If you like this episode, leave us a five-star review on whatever platform you are listening. It helps the podcast to be discovered. And once again, thank you for listening. This has been an Economist presentation.